All right, I think we'll, we'll get started. I think most of the folks who uh, were planning on being here are, are here now, so uh, there may be a few stragglers coming in. My name is Bill Garvelink. I'm a, a senior advisor here at, the, at CSIS. And today we have John Acri, who's a senior manager at the International Resources Group, which is a for-profit company that works on development and stabilization and humanitarian issues. Uh, John and I have known each other for, for a very long time. Uh, he started out in, uh, after, after college in the Peace Corps in Liberia and then went to graduate school to Monterey Institute and then took sort of a, uh, a side job at EPA, yeah. and he'll talk a little bit about that, and then eventually ended up the International Resources Group, where he's been very active primarily in humanitarian and stabilization activities, and I think we've worked together in the Balkans, in Iraq, uh, and other places in the Middle East. He's been uh, very involved in all sorts of activities of USAID in the United Nations. Um, in terms of humanitarian assistance, food aid, designing stabilizations, plans. So he's moved around within the, uh, the uh, international environment uh, quite a bit, but always attached to the International Resources Group. So with that, I'll turn it over to John. It's all yours. All right. Thanks, Bill. And thanks for having me. Um, I saw the – first I was surprised that Bill invited me because we have worked together. <laughs> so that was kind of stunning that he would do that. But um, – and then I looked at the uh, the title and and was uh, you know again very excited to come and 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 hopefully just address your concerns your questions and and some of your thoughts I won't spend too much time um, telling you what I think but but we'll start out a little bit with that um, I did start out in the Peace Corps in Liberia and I I had not really thought of development. Uh, the developing world, the development world uh, at all as a career. I was just out of college and didn't know what to do. And, and being a Peace Corps volunteer seemed like a fun thing to do, and it was. Liberia was not an easy place to go, however. And after two years um, and being introduced to USAID, being introduced to the work that uh, is truly field work when you're with the Peace Corps. I was a fisheries volunteer. We, we built fish ponds in the in the Liberian bush. So I was out there for a while, and it just seemed to be something, I didn't know what, but something I wanted to do. And then at that time, the first thing you, you had to do was get the master's degree, and I think you all probably understand that that's still uh, a key piece of this. If you want to pursue development, uh, we'll call it development for, for today, and I'll break that out a little bit if you want. Um, so that was important. The Monterey Institute offered a, a uh, Peace Corps scholarship, which I did not get. But by the time I had gone out to visit Monterey, California, there was no doubt that I would stay there and go to school. If anybody has been to Monterey, you know what I mean. Very beautiful place. And the Institute, are there any Miss students here today? Okay. The Institute still has a very... Yeah, that's right. Has a very active international program. My degree is in international public administration, the 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 the, the MPA. Uh, and at the time, that was about as specific as you got in terms of a degree in development. I met with a student here uh, last week, who told me her degree was in international development and humanitarian assistance, and I was 
kind of stunned at that, that it went down into that detail of actually achieving a degree, a graduate degree in that, in that field. So that's, that's a big development since, since uh, I left the academic world. So uh, I was inspired to continue the career, um, moved to Washington. This is the place to be to, to initiate a career in international development. I knew that. You have to be here to beat the sidewalks, to meet with people, to get networked, to do all the things that they tell you to do in career counseling. You, you have to be here. There's, that's, that's clear. Um, and it wasn't going well. I did not immediately grab an international job in development. That, that just didn't happen. And so I accepted a job at the Environmental Protection Agency, the EPA, in their financial management division, I can't add, um, in their quality control and audit team. And I've never done an audit or I had no idea what that was. But I did a, I interviewed well, I looked hungry. Whatever it was that they needed to see, they hired me. And uh, so I was a GS9 working in the EPA in an old building down by Waterside, down at the waterfront. That's where EPA used to be. And I did that for about a year and a half. And during that year and a half, I, I mean, I performed as best as I could. I, I, did, not, I did not just pass that job off. I, I had a responsibility, and I took it seriously. Um, but during that time, I was job searching. And it's, it's certainly much easier to search for work in what you want to do when you're working, even if it's not what you want to do. And so about 18 months later, after many resumes, now this was before the internet, of course, before computers even. Uh, I mean, I think we had a, I think my first computer was the, the IBM 286, if anybody, I, you all know, you don't know what that means. It's green screen and DOS and, yeah, Lotus 123. Anyway, uh, so I had to walk those things, those resumes, send them through the mail, et cetera, et cetera, and I finally got a hit. And it was... Uh, an obscure group. In fact, uh, in, in the 60s, they were tied to the CIA. Uh, they don't exist anymore. It was called AFIELD, the American Institute for Free Labor Development. Remember them? Yeah. Tom Doherty. I think Bill Doherty was the leader. They were involved in organized labor down in Central and South America, and it was very controversial at the time. Uh, and the CIA was involved in them, although they denied it. And they wanted me to... Uh, head up a program that was in trouble. It was a USAID contract um, in Guatemala. And it was a labor organizing contract that was tied to agriculture, sesame seeds. I knew nothing about sesame seeds, or agriculture, for that matter. And I didn't speak very good Spanish. But again, uh, I looked hungry. I looked desperate, maybe. Uh, it was probably what it mostly was. And I was, I was willing to go. I was willing to go to Guatemala, which in the early 90s was uh, embroiled in a civil conflict with uh, guerrillas uh, attacking um, the military uh, and civilian targets in, in northern Guatemala and in the city, Guatemala City. So it wasn't an attractive place for many. And I went and I accepted it and, and off we go. And so I guess the point is, uh, in terms of the career part of development, hang in there. Uh, it will happen. And, and just, just do your homework. Do all those things. I'm not a career development 
expert. I'm sure you have those, and they tell you the same things. Pay attention to them and just keep plugging away at it. And then I can certainly, if you have some uh, questions about that, I'll, I'll go into it if that's what you want to do. Um, but again, going back to the title of today's discussion, which is the role of private consulting in international development, um, the name of the game for, I think, the private consulting firms in international development in the United States is USAID. That's really the big, the big client, if you will. And as uh, a private firm, IRG, probably 98, 99% of its work is contract work with USAID. And I would guess that uh, most of the other firms in the Washington area that are registered to work with the US government also, and in this field, also have over 90% of their work with USAID. So they're the game in town. So you follow them. And they've gone through certain trends over the last 20, 30 years. Bill can maybe help me here. But I remember in Guatemala in the 90s, they, um, they went through a big, what they called a RIF, a reduction in force. And they cleaned house. They, they really let go a lot of mid-level uh, technical experts that were working at USAID. So if you, if you look at USAID at the time, maybe at a level here, as technical capabilities. And, and, and what I mean by that is people at USAID actually knew things like health and agriculture and um, infrastructure and government and things like that. Those people were let go. And so the technical capabilities of the agency went down. And those people all got jobs in the private sector. And then there was a period where aid realized they didn't have enough people to do the work they wanted to do or that was demanded of them. So they hired, they began hiring and contracting all the same people that they just fired through these firms. And so then the firms went up in capabilities, and now the firms have all the technical expertise. And so now you have that going on through the late 90s and into the early 2000s. And now we're at a point, another point, where USAID wants to reform USAID Forward, does uh, anyone, is that a familiar term to anybody? And we're really not sure what that means yet. Uh, it came in with the new administration, and, and, and there's some good things about it. There's some questions about it. We're not really sure. I can't really comment on it. Uh, I just go with the flow, really. But they want to get back to, to aid doing a lot more work, uh, to, to reduce their dependency on these large contracts. Um, so, so I, and we've seen some of that. We've seen some, some of these larger contracts go away. And then the focus being uh, for a while on conflict states, on fragile states, that might be coming back. We had a discussion here a couple weeks ago on fragile states. I used to teach a, a seminar at, at GW on, on uh, fragile and failed states as well. And, and that was a popular movement for a while because it became apparent that most of aid work, whether it be development or the other side of, of aid, which is humanitarian assistance and transition initiatives, uh, all, that work was being conducted in uh, very fragile areas, very fragile states, if not conflict, post-conflict, and pre-conflict countries. And so it became a, a very hot topic for a while, and then that kind of went away too. So it's, 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 aid is in flux most of the time. Um, the, the, the end, though, at the end of the day, they still need people to do things. And they still have not been able to build up 
the required workforce and staff. And with budget cuts every, you know, couple years, as the U.S. budget goes up and down, so does USAID's ability to bring those people on board as full-time staff. You can still do it. We can talk about that if you're interested. But at the end of the day, they are still quite dependent on the private sector and the NGO world to, to do the work that they want to do. So USAID doesn't touch bodies, and that's how we put it in the humanitarian uh, profession. They're contractors and they're grantees, the NGO world. They're the ones that do the, the work on the ground. And so aid became a contracting agency rather than a doing agency. And again, there's some shifts going on right now. Let's see how it plays out. But right now, I think it's in the middle of something that we're not quite sure. But they're still dependent, and there's still a lot of opportunities in the private sector consulting profession that, that you can grab onto. This is, the key is just hanging in there and taking your time and, and, and being patient. Um, so I'll, I'll mention a couple other things, and then I'll, we'll open it up. Bill, is that all right? No, so, I've got a question for you, and then we'll open it up. Oh, that's right. <laughs> Why did you come here? Um, the, uh, I, I, kinda, I thought about this, believe it or not, over the 4th of July, and, and, uh, and there was a, some, some interesting pairings I thought we could maybe look at. And first of all, it's USAID versus State Department or DOD. Now, both of the other uh, government entities, State Department and DOD, are involved in this profession as well. USAID is considered um, the doer a lot, more than, more than the other two. DOD is becoming a doer in this soft side, in the civilian side, uh, which has got, um, it has many people upset and questioning, but still they have many more resources and capabilities in terms of heavy lifting and, and people to do this work. So they're, they're becoming involved. And then State Department, which is normally a, the policy and the diplomatic side of things, often want to do things. And so they get their nose in it too. And, and so there's this constant back and forth between aid, state, and DOD. And some of you may have learned of or seen uh, the three Ds. Uh, Hillary Clinton brought it up uh, several years ago, but it's been around for a while, where you've got development, diplomacy, and defense as a whole-of-government effort uh, in, in, this, in, in, in this thought of development. And the problem is, is that the Ds are different sizes. So the three circles that come together, one's very large. That's DOD. One's kind of medium-large, and that's State Department. And then the other circle's very little, and that's aid. Yet USAID is the agency that does this. And they do it well. They have very, the, 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 the contractors that do this more than, more than not do it very well. And aid does it very well. They know what they're doing. They just don't have a lot of the resources and staff to do it more or do it as, as much as they want to. So you've got that dynamic. You've also got within AID the dynamic between um, development and then humanitarian assistance and transition initiatives. And they're two different things. And within AID, there's friction. Uh, there are many in the development side who have been doing development for quite some time. And I guess what I mean by development is a longer-term approach to, 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 to results. We, we, we want to really tie in uh, the government 
We're learning how that works. We're learning much more about how good governance is a big part of this. And it's longer term. And it's classic aid things like health and education and governance, things like this. So you've got those folks, which makes up most of the agency in terms of staff and technical capabilities. Then you've got the humanitarian assistance and transition initiatives or stabilization, if, if you will, side of things. These are much more shorter term in nature. They don't worry much about sustainability uh, or, or high impact on development. Uh, and so the friction comes in is, is how much money should you spend on the one-off effort of a humanitarian relief uh, uh, activity or a transition initiative, transition uh, 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 activity versus the longer term, you know, higher impact, long term impact, sustainable impacts that you're looking for on the development side. And those are two different fields, so we can talk about that a little bit. Then you have a little, um, uh, an, an interesting difference between the NGO world and the private sector world. And I've worked in both. And I guess the, the, the main difference that people will often discuss is the private sector is in it for profit and the NGO world is not in it for profit. And that, that's not exactly true, but that is a di I mean, the private sector, they charge fees. And that's, that's where their profit margin comes in. They charge a fee for their services in the contract, and it's stated. Sometimes it's pre-negotiated. Sometimes it comes about as a cost plus fee, et cetera. But you have that in the private sector. And then the NGO world, they don't necessarily charge a fee, but they still can be expensive. They have their own ways of creating revenue so that they can operate. But I think the major difference between the NGO world and the private sector world is that the NGOs, every one of them, has anyone interned for an NGO or worked for an NGO? You, they have a mission. They have a very spe specific mission or vision, and it's usually driven by leadership. It's usually driven by the founder of the, of the NGO or by the long-time uh, 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 mission that this is, you know, Save the Children is different than Mercy Corps, and Mercy Corps is different than um, International Medical Corps. They all have their different missions, which can be very specific. A, con a consulting firm will, will probably be much more broader in its capabilities to do things. So they, they, can, they can apply or they can compete for contracts in health, education, humanitarian assistance, infrastructure, et cetera, et cetera, where, where the NGO world is, is usually they have their little niche and that's what they go for. And that's important when you're thinking about who am I going to, who, who do I want to work for or where should I pursue the opportunities that are out there. Then you have um, uh, the H headquarters versus the field. And um, if you're like me, I'm a field guy. But I understand over years of being a field guy that, that you also need to, to be tied into HQ. And wh what I mean by HQ is Washington. Washington is where it's happening, as I said. And the networking and the people that come in and out of Washington, you have to be a part of that. And I think many field experts who say, oh, I'm not coming back. I don't want to hate Washington. The traffic is hot. You know, I don't want to go there. I want to be out in Burma where there's traffic and it's hot. But it's in Burma. You know, that's exciting. That's where I want to be. 
And, and so, but they lose perspective sometimes. And, and I think you have to do a well-rounded approach to this. You have to know your HQ. You have to be in Washington. You have to know what's going on. You need to know where these movements of USAID are going, and you don't get that perspective from the field. On the other hand, you probably realize that you go and say, oh, I'm the perfect person for this job. Yeah, but you have no field experience. And yeah, that's important. You have to get out there, get your boots dirty. You, ha you have to feel that. It's, a, it's, it's something you don't learn. You have to get it by doing. So that's a tough thing to break into, and we can talk about that a little bit. So um, I'll, I'll kind of stop there, and then um, hopefully we can just have a discussion. And I'm, I'm very happy to take questions and your points of view as well. Thanks. Um, one quick question, just as you mentioned the role of the, the for-profit companies now, and what do you see in the next four or five years? I mean, you kind of did the history of, of, of AID a bit and there, the declining staff and the reliance on contractors and that sort of thing, and now you have uh, USAID Forward and that sort of stuff. But from the people you talk to and where you sit, what do you see, uh, what's the role of the for-profit companies, you know, say in the next 10 years, in, in you know, just kind of speculating a bit? Um, I think if you go back to just your basic dynamics of economics, um, the private sector will adjust. If, if USAID says, okay, we don't like the big companies, and I'm paraphrasing this, they haven't said this, but if, 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 if it seems like USAID is, is, is looking more at smaller businesses, we want to give smaller businesses a chance. And so you've seen um, through USAID Forward and through other announcements that there will be small business set-asides in their contracting mechanisms. That means small businesses are encouraged, and disadvantaged businesses, dis uh, small business, disadvantaged owners, et cetera. There's several categories that, that are, 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 well, there'll be a set-aside, which means that they, they get kind of a preference for, to compete. They still compete, but, but they're looking at the small business. Well, the, the private sector will adjust. I think you'll see the formation of small, more small businesses. You might see some spin-offs. You might see some, the creation of, of, of more women-owned or minority-owned businesses that can go after this. Problem is, is that when you have newer um, entities competing for this, they don't have the quals, the qualifications, the experience, just like individuals, to get that work, and they, it will take some time. But that's one big adjustment, is that uh, there seems to be a movement going to the smaller, disadvantaged, um, women-owned businesses, uh, and that's okay. I also think they're looking at smaller contracts that are more, that are more focused, and these larger uh, IQC or indefinite quantity contracts are kind of on the um, disfavored side. They still need them. It's a, it's a very good mechanism for aid. It's a very flexible mechanism for USAID. But they're, they're fairly large, and sometimes they're misunderstood. And when, they, when USAID has to explain themselves to Congress, they, they often stumble a little bit because Congress is saying, why are we giving $500 million to only these five companies, et cetera, et cetera. And so there's some misunderstanding to do, but, but nonetheless, th th that will probably, there'll be less of those types of contracts. Well, again, the private sector will adjust to that. And if the private sector has to reduce staff, has to, um, you know, become more focused in their practice areas, they will do that. And I see that adjustment happening, but I don't think it'll happen rapidly. I think it will happen in a, in a uh, more reasonable and, and less um, uh, uh, hurried way. And so 
it's it maybe a trend that's just beginning. Um, but keep, I think the private sector is certainly watching it very closely to see how they can take advantage of whatever opportunities come from that change. Good, thanks. Thanks. Questions, comments? There's bound to be, yes, go ahead. Let me ask, do you know, are you developing this proposal or this concept uh, without responding to a particular uh, request from AID? Is this unsolicited? Is this something on your own? Well, if you're responding to a request from USAID to do this type of project, that's one thing. So, so you're, just, you're developing this on your own. Uh, the NGO is developing it. Okay. That's a tough one. Um, that's tough. Usually unsolicited proposals are, are, are the, probably the toughest type of proposal to, um, to win, if I can put it that way. They, uh, aid usually wants to tell you what they want. And, and sometimes they don't know, but they, they still they'll word their, their proposals and their requests for applications and grants in a way which, you know, we want to do this. Tell us what you would do if you were provided a grant, et cetera. And so it, it's driven by USAID. And, and then you respond to that. If you're doing this unsolicited, then uh, it's, it's much more difficult but not impossible. And I think the most important piece then, if that's the case, is that you, ha you really need to be in the country that you're, that you're focused on. You have to have people there, perhaps an office. It might be a one- or two-person office. But you have to have presence. And, and that indicates that you are on the ground, you know what's going on, you have a pulse uh, on the political situation, you have a pulse on the economic situation, on the dynamics of the technical piece that you want to work on. And that's invaluable. It, it would be very difficult to say, here we are, we do these wonderful things, uh, we want to go to this country to do them, but we don't have our visas yet, or something like that, if you know what I mean. So very difficult, but that would be my first uh, priority is to get there and, and establish yourself or, or demonstrate that you are there. We've been trying to do that ever since. And it's really hard to do. And there's re there's, I can give you my opinion on that. I, I doubt if this has ever been proven. But I, I guess um, my recent experience in Afghanistan it could, could be used as, as, as a means to explain my opinion. We ran, or I, I was the office director for the stabilization uh, office uh, in Kabul. And... and the programs, this was, this was very unique, once-in-a-lifetime type of situation where they, they don't have stabilization offices in, in USA. They have an office of transition initiatives, which usually can conduct this type of, of effort. But in one country, the aid mission had an office focused on transition and stabilization. And we had probably five or six different contract, uh, it was more than that, seven or eight different contracts, uh, $1.6 billion in that office alone. And that's just, that's just unheard of. That, that, that is just, it'll never happen again. I, I can guarantee you that. It was just too much. But we were trying. We were trying to get it done. And we were constantly battling the program office, the USA program office. 
because they did not see how by hiring uh, temporary workers on a road project, some, some may refer to that as cash for work, uh, this type of concept where you're temporarily employing people to keep, keep them busy, pump, pumping some money into the economy, uh, uh, you know, getting that type of activity rolling and you're building something that the community wants, a road or a school or whatever the activity is, there would be some that would argue that that's unsustainable. You know, yeah, who's going who's gonna to follow up with that? Who, who's going to then employ these people when the three months of employment are over? And that's a good point, but that's not the point of the activity. So what you would try to do is that early on in the planning process, you would try to get with the development side of the mission and say, okay, where do you see health clinics? Where do you see uh, market roads? Where do you see um, uh, agricultural warehousing? Whatever the case may be, that will be important to your longer-term agriculture project or your longer-term health project. And then plan together so that that infusion of early cash or early grants from OTI or from a stabilization effort can then be followed up with a planned development program. So that sounds very easy and very logical, but given the heat of the day, given the rush, given the pressures politically, uh, usually in Afghanistan militarily, the pressures that we had to get out and do all of these things immediately right now. You have to move. You go from here to here. You have to do these very difficult activities in a conflict zone. There was no time to plan. You, you, and, and the development side were under the same kind of pressures to get things rolling. And so they, just to, to even think of sitting down at a table to talk about this, this became impossible. Um, and I think you probably can find uh, within uh, OFDA, OFDA, the Office of Foreign Disaster Assistance, and OTI, the Office of Transition Initi Initiatives, examples of where, not so much on the humanitarian aid side, because that's really immediate relief and response, but more on the OTI side, where they have worked with the government, which is the, the other key point, is tying it to the central and or local governments so that the sustainability piece can be picked up by USAID. So it's the way you do it, uh, particularly um, with planning and then with a tie-in to a legitimate government, which is often absent. So that's another key piece that, that needs to be there. And when you, when you are able to do that and stretch out that time period of immediate reaction to the longer-term thoughts and you're able to sit down and work that out, I think you'll have more success in that transition type of of, of goal that, that we want, but often miss, yeah. That's a good question, and in fact, they have training to, to, to answer that or to teach uh, aid contracting officers uh, what those differences are. And the basic one is that a contract, an actual contract, it's all a contract, it's a written agreement that happens, but aid has split it up into different categories. The private sector will get a contract that allows to charge a fee, and that's the you know that's why they do that. And then aid will have very high control over managing that contract. So as contractors, we we will go, yes sir, yes ma'am, and 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 we will go in the directions wherever aid wants us to. And then we and then the contractor has to meet milestones, 
and meet deadlines and provide uh, financial reporting, technical reporting, monitoring and evaluation information, impact studies, whatever, whatever analysis that might be required by the contracting officer. And it's very, uh, very well controlled if done correctly by AID. And then the contractor views AID as a client. You're our client, whatever you want. We, we will get that for you. You want to procure it here, you want to do this, you want to start that, that's fine. Just modify it and go. The NGO uh, side of the, of the work is usually based on grants and, and, and requests for applications. And USAID has less control over this, the actual implementation of that. So a, grant, a grantee uh, or, or, or a, a grant provided to an NGO is, based, is, is not completely like a gift. It's not a donation. There are some strings attached to it. There are some things uh, listed in the contract to allow them uh, some, you know, control. But basically, it's, we know you're, you're Mercy Corps, and we know you do this type of work, and therefore, we trust that you will do it. Here's the amount of money. Uh, report in three months. Let us know how it's going. And so it's much more, uh, much less controlled, and, and I think the, uh, it's much more dependent on the, on the expertise, experience, and mission-driven See, again, you've got the NGO, they know, the, 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 people know what those NGOs do, each NGO doing different pieces of it. In Iraq, for example, we had five NGOs, five of the international NGOs. We were all, we were conducting an uh, IDP program, Internally Displaced Persons Program. So we had, uh, we split the country into five areas, and each NGO was providing a piece of the program. 20 million here, 20 million here, 15 million here, et cetera. And we're reporting to our office in Baghdad. And, and it was, it drove the mission crazy because they wanted daily almost reports on IDP movements and, and IDP conditions and, and the severity of, of the crisis, et cetera. State Department as well, they have to write their cables. But the requirements of the of the grant of the RFA, a request for application, did not require daily reports. We, we, we couldn't demand that from them. It was quarterly. Every three months, they said, submit a report. Well, in this case, we worked with them, and, and they, were, they were able to provide us information. We didn't call it a report. We just called it information <laughs> so that we were able to appease those that wanted the information in a timely manner, yet we're not putting undue requirements on a grantee. So that's, I think that's the biggest difference. Does that make sense? It does. I'm just wondering. Well, that's a great question, and I'm not sure I can answer it in terms of, of, of aid. Maybe Bill can help me. I, I know that the, um, or I, I've seen experience that for contracts, the, usually they're, they're larger. For, you know, like a, a, if you were constructing a $300 million priced road, you would want that in a contract. You know, you would want to be able to oversee the construction of that large investment and to make sure things were done right, including site visits and tests and all those things that you have to do. And I think the 
excuse me, the grants are, are being proven that the smaller the grant, the more uh, it allows them flexibility. They can, they can run with it. They can make decisions on their own. They still report back, and certainly if they're, if they're seen to be diverting from the original intention of the grant, they can adjust and, and the aid can intervene. But those were, that, that would be one difference. Yeah, just a, a couple of comments, because I, I come from the, my career has been in the humanitarian side of the house of AID, too, most of the time. Um, but uh, there's a when, when you decide to uh, put some money in a given area or part of a country, use Southern Sudan now or now the Republic of Sudan, South Sudan. Uh, if you want something that, that covers the entire Southern Sudan, you're probably going to work with the United Nations because uh, they have the capability, capacity to cover a very broad area. If you want to do something in a community, you're going to work probably with an NGO. And as John said, every NGO has its expertise. You've got IMC, International Medical Corps, health and emergency settings. IRC is water and sanitation. Save the Children has a different, different priority as world vision, care. Some of the big ones do everything, but almost every NGO has a technical specialty. And you're looking for that um, at the community level. If you want something that's very technical, in my mind, and very political and broader than a community, uh, with very tight control, you want a, a, co a company, a contract. And frankly, one of the advantages uh, uh, of a contract is if you get into a very difficult political setting with an NGO uh, and you have no control, because as John said, if you look at the contracting law, a grant to an NGO is a gift. And you can advise them, your, your leverage is you're not going to give them another one if they really screw it up. But you don't have really tight control over their staff. And I can think of one case in Darfur where there was a guy actually working for, for IRG and I called up uh, another fellow there and said, get rid of him, I want him gone. He's more trouble than he's worth. And he was gone the wasn't next day. Me. No, it wasn't. <laughs> and within, within 24 hours, the person was out of the country and uh, I don't know what they did with him. But I said, fire him, get rid of him. You can't do, if you tried that with an NGO, oh man, you'd get into all kinds of trouble with their leadership for interfering and in how they run their programs and what they're doing. So it depends on your geographic spread, the technical thing you want to do, whether it's health or more broadly in the political area, and how much control you want. Because you, you have a grant, you have a cooperative agreement with an NGO, which is just a little more control than a grant, and then you have contracts. And I don't think NGOs rarely do contracts with NGOs. I can't think right. of any that I've ever done. Right. But so it depends. But it really depends on what you want to do on the ground, uh, and then you've got to pick and choose the instruments that are out there that you want to use. The other point, now that I'm thinking about it, yes, is um, the those same NGOs usually have a presence of years in, in these areas, these conflict zones and areas uh, where aid may not even have a mission or they evacuated the embassy. Well, the, the NGOs are there. They're doing their work. They have revenue, not revenue, they have donations coming in from all over the world. You know, Here's my $5, here's my $10. So they have these activities that are ongoing. So the grant then becomes a very good tool if you, if you need that community presence where everyone loves IMC or everyone loves CARE because they're known, they have staff that have been there, national staff usually that are there living and, and they know the areas, et cetera. And it's just an infusion of, of, of quick cash. And that's a huge benefit 
to, to uh, AID to be able to get that coverage, whereas a contractor may have to come in, establish an office, get permission to work there. That's why Burma will be difficult, or Myanmar will be difficult, because it's hard to get in there to do work, if, if that indeed is what AID wants to do eventually. So. You're referring to you as a person. My first piece of advice is accept whatever you can. Get in the system. Uh, and maybe your career counselors have, have said this differently or uh, disagree with that. But So, I mean, I would have a focus, and I would, I would state that focus. But, but uh, it, you, may, you may have to get there around a different way. So, um, yeah, I, I think in your studies you probably have focused on something particular, and I think you should... Stay true to yourself and keep that in the back of your mind. But getting into the system is, is imperative. And what I mean by that is someone hires you to do something. And then you, oh, absolutely. And then you learn how it works within that setting. And you can then begin to branch out and determine where your next steps might be. And it may be that you say, ah, oh, what was I thinking two years ago when I thought I was going to do that? I'll do this instead. Uh, Say yes, volunteer. Uh, if, if you say, well, I wasn't really thinking about that place, but I'm going to go anyway. And, and that can do wonders for providing you options, which is what you want. It's not, it would be rare that it just happened for you, that, oh, this is my dream job, I just graduated, and it's perfect, and it's going to be exactly what I want. And if, please tell me if, if that happened to you, because I, I, you, you really should be on the news. Um, I, I, it's rare, uh, and so uh, keep it. Keep your goals flexible. Um, keep your individual goals in your mind, but be flexible and understanding that it's gonna. It might come about in, in ways you never thought. That's really what happens. I. Th that's what happened to me anyway. I don't have um, a background on 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 Asia, particularly. Viet, Vietnam. I'd love to go there. If, if you know of anyone that wants to hire IRG to go there, let me know. Um, but um, let me say this, I, I guess, in, in, in the little I do know. I know Vietnam has come a long way. And if, if development can, can and is often perceived as an economic-driven issue, I think Vietnam is well-placed to take advantage of that. I, I think that um, m much more, maybe, Bill, you can, you can disagree or agree, but I think much more than in the past, we're, we're, we're looking at development um, it, through the economic sense. Uh, you know, what is it that really is sustainable? We want to do the right thing, you know. Uh, decreasing infant mortality is important. It's the right thing to do. It, it, it's, it's, we should do that. Um, but I think many activities that were, that were standoff activities that were the right thing to do, it was a good thing to do, it was, we were doing it well, are now being approached economically. You know, what are the economic benefits of doing one thing or another? Can we tie the economics of the Mekong Delta into other aid activities? And I would guess they are looking at it that way. So economics, if, if, you, if you have an economic background, you're in pretty good shape too. It's, it's a very important trend, I think, 
to sustainable development and what, what USAID really wants to do in many cases. That's a really good question. Um, I think most, IRG is not a big company. We compete against very large companies. And uh, so we have a certain niches that we believe we uh, have established a reputation and, and, and the qualifications for. Um, but we've adjusted it as well. IRG started in the early 70s as a um, uh, alternative energy company. This was during OPEC, uh, again, a, a name that dates us a little bit, during the initial Arab oil embargoes <coughs> in the 70s. And there was a big movement on alternative energies, just like there is now. You know, why are we so dependent on oil? Well, we, it was the 70s it started as well. So um, it started as a very small, limited partnership on alternative energy. Uh, and then the, uh, it became, in the, as, as the 70s moved into the 80s, the attention to the environment became very important to AID. And, and so it became an en alternative energy and an en environmental natural resource management firm. So uh, again, we adjusted with the flow of AID. And it takes time, but over the years established a very well-respected practice in the environment and keeping the energy piece as well. And then about 12 years ago, um, they, uh, IRG moved into this humanitarian assistance uh, transition type of activity. Again, we were talking about fragile states. We were talking about conflict states. There was a, a large amount of effort being put forth uh, in, in, in determining uh, how we work in these very fragile areas. And we picked up a practice um, and so created this other division that I work in called the Relief and Reconstruction Division, which, which has d built itself into uh, a fairly, it's still small, but reputable uh, practitioner of humanitarian assistance and, and stabilization transition in initiative. So we've adjusted over time to, to allow uh, the, the company to persevere and then to, uh, to then build on that practice. But it, it doesn't happen overnight. And you have to pay a lot of attention, again, to, to where aid is going and, and, and try to predict um, where the next wave is and be out in front of that curve a little bit and prepare yourselves for that change. But it's hard to say right now. It really is. Just to, just to add a quick comment, and, and I think John's right for a lot of the companies, certainly around Washington, that watch aid very carefully. But the trends that, that aid, uh, USAID, follows or has experienced are also the same, pretty much the same that differed in a lot of the United Nations uh, agencies as well. So it's what I think Washington is a fairly accurate reflection mm -hmm. of what's going on in the, in the development community internationally. So you would find the same sort of trends in DFID, the same in both Canadian CETA and Swedish CETA and some of the other uh, OSAID, they're focused on other parts of the world than we are. Uh, in large part, but the same sorts of trends you'd find in, in those development agencies as well, I think. Um, another great question, and I think that's an area that we're, that a lot of, that many in this field are, are looking at. Uh, in the past, large international private companies, manufacturing companies, uh, 
the other industry that comes to mind is the extraction industry, oil and, and, and mining. Did not treat or understand the, the development or the community-based or the, the soft side of their business uh, in these areas, which, which I think clearly uh, is demonstrated by the violence that the oil companies often find themselves in in Nigeria and, and other places where the communities have just had it. The corruption, the, 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 the skimming, whatever. The communities don't see the benefits of, of the oil, for example. And we've seen it in Nigeria for years and years. And, and I think they treated it, the private sector treated that for a while as a public affairs problem as a public relations problem. Say, so, well, what, what do we do? Well, let's build a soccer field or let's get the football team some uniforms or let's um, build a little road for the village or something like that. Just, just something, throw them something. They, I don't think they looked at it too seriously in terms of cost, benefit, loss, uh, these types of, of issues. But I, that's changed. And, and I think we're finding more and more um, the large international firms starting to get a grip on how to do that. And I, I, I'm not familiar with the Millennium Challenge uh, piece to, to USAID. But in fact, they don't even manage that anymore, do they? Is that in the State Department now, MCC? MCC? Separate. Yeah, separate. separate. But I think that was an attempt also to, to, to tap into the private sector resources, which are often much larger and more flexible to, to allow for some of this to happen with the long term in mind. If, if, you, if you think that or you believe that developing an, an economy is also is tied to developing a community or developing a, a country, then it becomes clear that, that these types of investments are, are necessary. And I think you're seeing much more of it uh, uh, nowadays. But I don't know how aid is viewing that in terms of allowing them to do what they do uh, in, and leverage that with private sector funds. Uh, I, I think it's a good idea. And uh, we've, we've looked at it, in fact, in, in, in talking to oil companies and mining companies, say, listen, if you believe that we need to do this, hire us to do it, to do it for you. We will do that. And in fact, I know there are NGOs um, who have done exactly that with Standard Oil and Shell and some other places where they've been able to put in some training programs, some community-based uh, development activities sponsored by the, the company that's working in those areas. And it's, I think there's some good results there. If I could just add a, a, a couple of comments about that. What, what you see in one of the initiatives um, that aid has undertaken for the past couple of years is this Food Security Feed the Future initiative. And they're pushing very hard for the private sector to engage in that activity, uh, focusing on smallholder agriculture and all that sort of thing. And a lot of companies are doing that, from PepsiCo to Yara to uh, Walmart to a lot of others. But, and I guess it, it struck me, you think, well, the private sector is, is engaging with these small farmers and they're connecting with them and they're building uh, economies and markets and all that sort of thing. Well, no, they're not, really. Uh, Walmart hires NGOs and, and Yara hires NGOs. The private sector realizes how important it is to, to work with local communities. It used to be just a feel-good thing, as, as John said. Well, now that there's money to be made. But still, the, the private sector companies themselves don't do that. They don't know how to do that, and they don't, they don't presume to know how to work with communities and look at local community development. They hire NGOs. 
I spent a few years in the Congo, and a big company there is Freeport McMoran. It's the largest mining company in the world. And where they have a copper and cobalt mine in Katanga province in the southern part of the country. And they spend 20 to 30 million dollars a year on community development. They build schools, health clinics, all of that. PAC does it. They don't. Uh, they've, they've had uh, grants or contracts with that NGO for, for the, certainly the three or four years I was there. And they do all the community development. So when you hear private sector companies saying, well, we're working with communities and we do community development, well, they're putting up the money. But they don't, they don't do it themselves. They're turning to the NGO community. And I would assume the big ones would probably look more toward uh, private companies for that, too. Mm -hmm. they, they just don't have that expertise, and they admit that. And they don't try to do it. They just buy it. 